So uh, in, uh, in junior high, moving into junior high, uh, I really wanted to learn to play an instrument. My, my family's not real musical. Uh, we inherited a, a piano, uh, much to my mom's disappointment, because it's really heavy. Uh, so every time we moved, there's this big heavy piano, but nobody knew how to play it or anything. I really wanted to learn how to be a musician, and so going into middle school, I have the opportunity to join the band. Uh, now, my idea of a band uh, you know, it was like ACDC or Aerosmith or something like that. And the, the concert band at, uh, at Hauk Middle School was, was a little bit different than that. So I show up uh, to like recruitment day and they're like, well, do you want to play the flute or the clarinet? I was like, ACDC doesn't have either of those. I don't know what you're talking about. I, guitar, bass, uh, or drums. They go, well, we have percussion. I go, does that have drums? They said, there's drums in there. I said, I'll take that one. That's how I decided to play the drums. True story, right? So joined the, the, the concert band in, in middle school. And uh, the, the year that I get into middle school, we get a new band director. And we are the worst middle school band in all of the city. There is not a worse middle school band at that time in the city of Salem than Hauk Middle School. Bottom of the pack. Just dreadful. Uh, but this new... Uh, band director comes in, he's fresh out of college, he is ready to make a difference, right? He comes in and he says, we're, we're going to do something, we're going to do something amazing here. We are not going to be the bottom of the pack anymore. We're going to turn this thing around, right? And so me and, and the other students, I don't know how many students are in, in the band, 40, 50, 60, something like that. He inspires us to like take, take our craft seriously, to get serious about our instruments, and, and we're going to turn this sucker around, right? So I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm fired up. He brings to us, you know, I mean, there, there's a few weeks we're getting ready, and, and then we need to pick our music that is going to be the, the music that we learn and then play for the competitions at the end of the year. And he brings this, this piece of music uh, from David Holsinger called Haven Dance, uh, this incredible piece, very difficult for a high school band to pull something like Haven Dance off impossible probably for a middle school to pull this off and then the worst middle school band like it's a joke he puts his music in front of us and I remember he put he sets us out on all the stands we, we come in and uh and he he gets up on the the little podium he goes okay everybody ready here we go makes us sight read the piece we have no idea what we're doing it was the worst sound anyone's ever heard squeaking and honking and squawking and he just kept going no matter what he said we're getting through it and it was a train wreck all the way through He's like, okay, we have nowhere to go but up from here. And we started working on this thing over and over and over again, breaking out into sections and working out the pieces, right? And, and together we had this common goal that we're going to conquer this piece of music. And in so doing, we are going to pull ourselves up and we are not going to be the worst band in town. Uh, we could be second worst, that would be fine, but, but we're going to get this thing. Well, slowly it starts coming together, right? And, and but everyone has their, their, their piece. You've got, you know, the clarinets need to nail their thing and different parts, you know, different movements through the, the song and it, it moves in and out of these exciting uh, different portions where different instruments have the, the focus. And then the whole song, it's building and building and building to this pinnacle moment which highlights the incredible percussion section, my, myself included. There is a moment where the whole band is building. It's right at the end of the song. The whole band builds and then drops for one beat when sounding out from behind the rest of the instruments come this single, crisp, clear cowbell note. Boop, 
right, and it's got to be perfectly timed. And then as soon as that hits, the whole band comes back in, finishes the song. It's amazing. Other musicians may not have found that to be like the absolute pinnacle of the song, but from my perspective where I was sitting, this was the point that made or broke the song. And as we practice, I mean, you know, the song's moving at a quick pace and stuff, and you're playing other instruments, you're doing cymbals and, and xylophones and all the different things. And then I got to get over the cowbell and hit this thing at just the right time, and I could not nail it for anything. It was dreadfully embarrassing. I, I just, it was bad. It, I had, anybody familiar with the SNL skit, uh, I had this real life moment where the band director is in, in front of the moment, Brian, I've got to have more cowbell. You cannot leave me hanging. I've got to have that cowbell. Uh, and, and that whole skit is just, it's my, my real life. Uh, anyway, we, we, we work this thing, we work this thing, we work together, and, and gradually throughout the process of a year, we're, we're able to conquer this piece of music. We go to some, some competitions, uh, and, and we blow past the other middle school bands. And then it comes down to us and, and one other school, and I mean, we were like fighting for our life, man. We could actually win the whole thing in, in whatever district or whatever we were competing, I don't remember all the details. And, uh, and we, did, we did the best, uh, you know, the, the best time we've ever played that in our entire lives. We absolutely nailed it. Uh, and we got second place, which, you know, it would have been a cool story if, if we got first. But still, getting second place was like a huge accomplishment. The point of my story is not that I'm an epic cowbell player, which I am. Gray and, and, and these guys, anytime you need cowbell. Uh, you know, I'll hop off the drum set and I'll, I'll jump on the cowbell. I, I'm happy to do it, okay? For the sake of the Lord, right? Uh, but that's not the point of my story. The, the point of my story is you have what, what happened there is, is bonds were created, bonds many of which still last to this day. We had such a shared experience uh, for the, you know, many of us, the three years that we were in that middle school, uh, which then we, we went on the, the next year, we won everything in the, in the middle school competitions, and we went on and competed in high school divisions and won a lot of that stuff. I mean, like, we built on that, and, and it was just this amazing experience. I remember traveling with the band to California, go to these festivals and stuff. The, what happened there was, like, because of this shared experience, because we overcame this thing together, because we were unified in purpose and goal, uh, the, the bonds made were unbreakable, right? It, just an amazing, amazing experience. Now, many of you probably have experiences like that uh, for your time in the, in the military, right? The, the band of brothers effect that, that you were, you know, fighting in the trenches with, with these people, and, and those are bonds that will last forever. Uh, many of you have, you know, examples from, from sports teams overcoming the odds and, and, and winning or conquering a, a game or, or whatever. I'm just not that cool. I just don't have, the middle school band is the greatest underdog story I ever participated in. I'm sorry, it's not more cool, but, but that's what I've got. What Paul is talking about, uh, let me transition into, into something useful. And what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about, I think, two things. One is, is the unity of the believers. And, and secondly, is the participation of believers. The, the unity of believers, he has in this church in Ephesus, uh, we have two groups of people, uh, and, and in Ephesus, we, we have a, a heavily Gentile group in this church, and, and there is incredible hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews. There's incredible hostility within the church in people groups that did not do things together. There was... There was complete separation, walls of division, uh, walls of separation, many of which still culturally exist 
today, uh, my, my wife spent some time in Israel uh, before we knew each other, and, and she talked about literal walls dividing the city of Israel between the, the, the Jewish and the Muslim and the Christian parts of town, and, right, something like that, and, and people don't cross. It's unsafe to cross from one side of town into another, dividing walls of hostility, and those are the same dividing walls of hostility that existed in this church. You have these new Christians, new converts coming from Judaism coming from uh, a, a tradition of following the Lord and observing his, his laws and rules, and Jesus comes as the Messiah, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, and you have these people still observing the, the Old Testament festivals and, and, and uh, you know, rules and, and dietary restrictions and all of these things, uh, and, and now they love Jesus and they're following Jesus, and you have the Gentile believers. You have, for the first time now, included people who were not generally included with the people of Israel. You have people included who were outsiders, separate, having nothing to do with the people of Israel, nothing to do with the promises. And now they've, they've placed their faith in Jesus, they're Christians, and they're in this church, and, and there's hostility and there's friction between these groups in the church. And Paul wants, their, uh, wants the, the people in this church to understand what God is calling us to is unity. He has unified us to himself, and, and he is calling us to be united with each other, to be reconciled with each other, and we need to set aside that hostility and, and be united with one another. So that's kind of the, the background and the setting for what's happening here. Um, and, and I, I just I kind of want to ask the question, like, what unites Christians? If you have these vastly different uh, groups, vastly different cultural groups who are now a part of the same church, who are arguing about the details of how this should look and how this should go, what, like what is supposed to unite them? And, and Paul gives us three metaphors, which I think are helpful. He gives us three metaphors here. If, if you look in the, in the passage there in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. That's, that's the first one he points out, citizens of a kingdom, right? Citizens of a kingdom with a common king. Jesus is our king. Citizens with, with a common geography, uh, citizens with, with common boundaries, and our boundaries are not physical on earth, but it is that we are citizens of heaven, right? That those are the, that's the geography of, of the group that we now belong to as Christians is that we, we belong to heaven. We're, we're aliens in this place, but we look forward to our citizenship and our belonging in heaven. That is our geography and, and a common set of laws. We're united in what Christ has called us to. So uh, citizens with the saints, members of, uh, uh, continuing on in verse 19, members of the household of God. So we move from citizens of a kingdom to members of a household, right? Citizens in a kingdom might live miles apart, but members of a household live, live feet apart. We're getting more intimate, closer, more connected. And as he uses this metaphor, members of a household would, would share a, a, a common father, not just a king, but a father, right? We know he is established already, God the Father. He's father to us both, Gentile and Jew, right? To the, to the, the, the Christian, you know, in our day, the, the person who's grown up in church and the person who's not grown up in church, the person who's near, the person who's far, we now, in Christ, have a common father. God the Father is our father. In the household of God, we share that. That's uniting, right? We, we, we share within a household common, common rules, right? And, and the way a house runs. We, we share common uh, responsibilities, right? Everybody has chores in the house to do. Everybody has some work to do. 
right? People arrive here at this church early in the morning and set up the speakers and the lights and the, the cables and the wires and the band gets here and they, and they practice and, and other people prepare the hospitality and, and all that stuff. Somebody gets up early, I don't even know how early because uh, it's always here, and they brew coffee. God bless them, right? There's coffee here when we get here. This is, this is a work of the Lord. This is amazing. Uh, there, there's Within the household, there's, there's chores, there's things to be done. We share in that. There's unifying as we are working to a uh, uh, kind of this common goal. And then he goes on, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, he's starting to use this language, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We've gone from, from a, a nation Right, we, we've gone from from a, a, a citizens of a of a nation to members of a household to now pieces of a structure, building materials in the structure, which is the temple, right? And and we each have a, a, a role and responsibility. Now, now citizens may live miles apart, and people in a household may live feet apart. But how closely do the bricks in a in a structure live? They're right next to each other, right? They're stacked upon each other. They, they, are, they are linked together with mortar. They are bound together. They, they grow strong as they are united together. So Paul's moving from kind of this broad uh, and general to a more specific and a more personal and a more intimate description of our relationship with Christ and with each other uh, within uh, th- this experience which is Christianity. So I, I need to back up just briefly and, and make sure that we understand first that, that we've been united to God. Now, if, if you know, and, and we would have read, you know, originally Ephesians would have been read in its entirety uh, to the church uh, that it was written to, right? They, they would have sat down and, and read the whole thing. And so as we break this down phrase by phrase and we work our way through, we can sometimes forget the context. But let's remember that, that Paul has established this all, already that we've been reconciled to God. We've been united to God. That must come first before you ever have a uniting or reconciling of people. You cannot have uh, vastly different people reconciled in any kind of meaningful way apart from God first reconciling us to himself. Uh, There are uh, dividing walls, walls of hostility between these people. Um, But but more than that, there's a dividing wall of hostility between mankind and and God, right? There, there's a dividing wall of hostility which, which actually dwarfs all other dividing walls of hostility between individuals before people. Remember that in the, in the temple, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, they, they, they built this temple, and in the, the centermost, in the innermost part, you had the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence would come and dwell, and no one was allowed in that place except for uh, one specific priest, one time a year, after making a heavy atonement for sin for himself and the people before he could walk in there. And separating the Holy of Holies from everything else in the temple was a curtain, a dividing wall of hostility. A dividing wall of hostility between mankind and God because we, as people, have chosen to rebel against God, have chosen to, to make ourselves God, to make our own way, to follow our own path, we, uh, are, are, we inherit and we participate in incredible sin against God, our creator and our maker who loves us dearly. But that separation that starts in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis 3 
continues through all of humanity, continues today. There is a separation, a wall of hostility between us and God that was marked by that curtain in the temple. And then remember, when Jesus dies on the cross, the moment he dies, the curtain is torn from top to bottom, which is noteworthy, right? It's not bottom to top. It's not us tearing the curtain, making its way up. God tears the curtain from the top down. He separates, or, or uh, he, he tears down the wall of separation. He tears down the, this curtain, which has been a, a wall of hostility between man and God. Matthew 27, 51 uh, Matthew 27, 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It's this incredible, incredible moment where God steps in and, and tears that wall of hostility. And, and I just, we, we need to understand, as we look at unity with one another, uh, we, and we can think of all the people we don't want to be united to, right? Think of the people you are most different from. Think of the people who, whose views, whose understanding of the world, whose priorities are so different from yours, you could not exist in community with this person. There's no possible way. The difference between God and man is greater than any of those two groups of people. Republicans and Democrats. Men and women. Black and white, citizen versus illegal immigrant, young and old, rich and poor, pro-life, pro-choice, Muslim versus Christian, homeschool versus public school, alcoholic versus teetotaler. Who thought I was going to use the word teetotaler in a sermon today? Not many, right? I love that word. Uh, vaxxer versus anti-vaxxer, Israeli versus Palestinian, Russian versus Ukrainian, right? The, the most hostile people in the world. The hostility that exists between, uh, uh, be, between those two groups of people pale in comparison to the hostility between man and God. And, and you may say, I don't feel like there's all that much hostility between me and God. Right? You may say, Brian, that seems a little dramatic. I mean, Russia and Ukraine... And, and, and that hostility that exists, and you're saying that the hostility between me and God, yeah, we're, we're okay. We're not, there's not that much hostility. But I would point out, uh, you are not the offended party. You don't, make, uh, you don't get to make that declaration. You and I are the offender. We, we don't get to say, it's okay. God, it's not that bad. Because we're the ones who've done the offending, right? I, I think we've all been moved by the stories of, of I mean, just these, these horrific things that happen um, where, where somebody murders a person's, you know, son or daughter. And, and we've heard the stories where the, the father, uh, you know, is, is doing some sort of press release and, and offers forgiveness to the murderer of his child. Those are moving and powerful stories because it's, it's uh, so dramatic, so, so drastic, so hard to comprehend uh, that level of forgiveness, right? But if the murderer said to the family of his victim, it's okay, we don't have that much hostility. How absurd would that be, right? The offender doesn't get to make that declaration. And so when we look at the relationship between us and God, it's important to understand that we are the offenders, you and I, we are the ones who have created 
and sustained the, the separation, the hostility between us and God. We're the ones that put the wall of hostility up. God's the one that can tear it down. He's the one that can tear it down. Uh, it, it, was, it was my sin which put Jesus to death on the cross. It was your sin that put Jesus to death on the cross. Uh, Jesus was the most offended person in all of human history. If you think about that, Jesus, the perfect sinless one, dies a sinner's death on the cross. He is the most offended person in all of human history. The one person in all of history who does not deserve to die, the one person in all of human history who was perfect and sinless, stands up and takes the penalty of sin on himself, the most offended person in the world. The sinless dies a sinner's death. And this infinite God, this sinless Savior, he chooses to reconcile with us. The whole reason Jesus dies on the cross is to reconcile this broken and sinful people to God. He's looking to reconcile us to himself He's the offended party, and yet he takes the offense on himself, and he dies for it. He dies in our place. It boggles the mind. It defies logic. That's how gracious and merciful our God is. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 18, starting in verse 18. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled, or you might use the word united, right, as we're kind of talking about unity, right, uh, through, uh, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the first thing we have to understand is that there was tremendous hostility between us and God, thanks to us. And God chose to break down that wall of hostility and reconcile with us. He fixes the relationship. He calls us, even despite our sin and our division and our rebellion against God, the, the ways we try to make ourselves our own gods, he comes after us anyway. He dies on the sin for us anyway. He reconciles us to himself. And now there is not a curtain in the temple. Right Now we are able to have relationship with God because of what Christ did on the cross. We are reconciled to God that is available to any and everyone, no matter where you're coming from or, or what you've done. God extends his invitation for reconciliation. Now then, we can talk about reconciling to one another. Right, The gospel is so central to everything we do as Christians. If we do not understand the gospel and what Jesus has done for us to unite us by the Spirit with the Father, then we cannot understand reconciliation or unity with one another. We cannot. The differences will always keep us apart. But when we see that God 
bridged a much larger gap between me and him, then the smaller gap between you and me is pretty easy to tackle, right? We have to understand what God has done. Our, our mindset has to be framed in that way so that when we go to this call for unity, we understand it in context. We understand what we've been forgiven of before we go on talking about forgiving and being united to one another. Within, within the church, uh, moving, moving on here to, to my next point, within the church, we have unique roles, right? And, and we're not all going to look the same. So when he talks about um, being built on the foundation, which is the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We, we don't just have a stack of bricks, right? We're not all bricks. Uh, we, we can't all be bricks. If you have a whole bunch of bricks, really nice bricks, and you stack them up, do you have a temple? No, you have a pile of bricks. <laughs> you may have a very nice and neat, tidy pile of bricks, but it's, that's it. There's nothing more to it. Well, what do you need if you're going to build a temple like Paul's talking about? Well, you're going to need some mortar. I don't know much about masonry, but I know you're going to need some mortar to stick these things together, right? You're going to need some mortar. You're probably going to need some sort of framing. Uh, you're going to need doors and, and windows. Uh, you're going to need a roof. Uh, you know, he already mentioned the, the foundation, I, and I don't know what all else goes into it, but there's, uh, you, you might have a doorknob, and, and you might have, you know, a light switch. I don't know. That, there's all the pieces that go into making this structure, and they're all very different, right? If you try to build a structure out of light switches... It's weird. It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything, uh, right? You need the light switch to turn the lights on, uh, but, but you also need the bricks and you need the mortar. And, and this is what's happening in, uh, within the church. We, we have unique roles that we're all called to, unique roles that, that we all must participate in. Uh, and, and, you know, Paul's going to go more into this in, in chapter 4 as he talks about the, the body of Christ and our roles. I, I wanted to jump... Uh, quickly to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where, where he talks again about the, the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, I'm mixing metaphors here, uh, as, as Paul does, but, but stick with us, right? So we're talking about a temple, now we're talking about a body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense, uh, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body." Let me, let me take a, a quick tangent, if, if you'll bear with me, uh, as, as we talk about unity and, and separation and, and understanding each other's unique roles. Uh, I, I came across this this week, uh, a scholar named George Gerbner uh, from the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s coined a term called mainstreaming. I thought this was really fascinating. In the, in the 1960s, uh, you know, television was, was a big deal, and there were so few choices on television <coughs> pardon me, massive, massive parts of the, of the population of the United States would watch the same thing 
at the same time, right? He, he gave an example of gun smoke, which, which at its peak had 40%, 40% of U.S. households that owned a TV watching that same program at the same time. And so you could, uh, you know, sit on a bus with somebody, uh, you know, the, the next morning, total random stranger you've never met before and say, can you believe that thing that happened? And they would, they would know exactly what you're talking about, right? There was this kind of shared common experience, uh, which, which he coins mainstreaming, this shared common experience. And what happens, uh, in fact, he has this, this great quote. Uh, he said that the kind of experience made TV like a church. It is comparable to a new religion, not to another medium. Steady, consistent, repetitive, and it is used as a ritual was his explanation of TV in the 60s, which is, which is so interesting. Now, I'm not saying that we fix our nation by going back to all watching the same TV show, okay? That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what happens here is as everyone's watching the same thing, uh, maybe being challenged by, by things of, of a different viewpoint than theirs, maybe being affirmed in other things, uh, but as they did polls, uh, people who were heavy TV viewers regardless of whether they were Republican or Democrat, left or right, they started to poll more similarly together, right? Because they had this shared common experience. Uh, it it kind of brought people away from the extremes and toward this common uh, idea more toward the middle. And, and it was more significant who someone would, would vote for or how they would answer a poll, uh, more significant than their party, their political party, was how much TV they watched. The more TV they watched, the more likely they were to vote together, uh, to poll together, to, to have a similar uh, opinion of, of, you know, big ideas and, and problems of that age. I think that's very interesting. Now, what's happened in, in our modern age is we don't consume TV like that at all anymore, right? Uh, and, and, and this is not the, the only problem, but I think this is indicative of, of what's happening. Um, like a, a huge TV show today might have a few percent, like low single digits, three or four percent of the population watching a show. That, I mean, that, that is so different than 40%, right? And instead what we do, we consume our media on, on YouTube and Netflix and Disney Plus and, and Discovery Plus and all, all the millions of other things. Even those, we're, we're watching different streaming platforms. And then within those streaming platforms, they're putting in front of you the shows that the algorithm knows you're going to enjoy, which are shows like other shows you've watched and what other similar people have watched and enjoyed. And so uh, they're putting in front of us shows that they know we will agree with the points of. And what happens instead of all watching the same thing and, and coming together, we're, we're all watching different, unique, niche programs that cater to the things that we like already. And we're actually being driven to the poles. We're being driven to the extremes rather than being pulled together. And we can see that and, and the outworkings of that in our culture, right? More division, more separation, more hostility is happening in our culture at large, and that's leaking into the church. The whole reason I'm, I'm giving this as an example, that's leaking into the church. Now, it's not all the fault of media, but, but social media and, and the way we consume, you know, TV shows and things like that have a massive impact on, on how we feel and interact with one another. And rather than having the shared common experience, which within the church should not be gun smoke, uh, although that could be cool too, uh, but like within the church it should be Christ, right? That is our shared common experience is, is God as Father, all those things I talked about at the beginning. Uh, but we're allowing other things to pull us apart within the church. And I think within our church, right here, those of us sitting here this morning, this is a problem that, that I deal with myself, it's a problem that we deal with within our church, uh, that, that we get pulled 
apart. And, and here's how this works. Uh, many of us have our, our hobby horse ministry. We, we have the, the ministry that we care most about. Uh, many of you know that, that my wife and I, we, we are all about foster care. Love foster care. I, I make that my hobby horse ministry. I think, I, I'm just going to be honest, right? I'm, I'm going to expose all my sin here for you. I think everyone should be involved in foster care. I think everyone should take kids in. Now, is, is that a biblical view? Am, am, should I be imposing that on everyone? No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. But what happens is, is I, my wife and I, we can start to feel like these people don't care enough about foster care. They don't care enough about the thing that we care so passionately about. Maybe we're just different people. Now, I'm not saying we're, we, we, we temper that, okay? I'm not saying we're threatening to leave or anything like that. Uh, but, but this is what happens, right? If we take this to the extreme, we need to go find a group of people, and we can find it online. There's social media groups. They're all about foster care and all this kind of stuff. And, and we, we get reaffirmed in our thinking and our understanding and our messaging. And, and so we think that the only thing Christians should be concerned about is foster care. And is that true? No, that's not true. Now, caring for the widow and orphan is absolutely critical. That is biblical. But to make that the singular focus of the church would be to say that everyone should be the same brick. Is that a healthy structure? It is not. That structure is going to fall down. There's no mortar. There's no framing. There's no doors. There's no windows. There's no roof. Now, somebody else might say adoption is the only thing we should be focused on. Homeschooling is the only thing we should be focused on. Deep theology is the only thing we should be focused on. What's your hobby ministry? What's the thing you think is more important than anything else, and you're frustrated that I'm not talking about it right now? That, that thing, that thing can separate us within the church. We start to feel like because everyone's not the same brick that I am, I should go find another church that's full of bricks, right? Uh, it's not, that's not healthy, that's not uh, helpful, and that's not a structure that's going to stand. It's not going to stand the test of time. We each have a unique role. What, what Paul is saying here is we're being built into this structure, each having their, their own unique place and role. We need to celebrate and be excited about those different roles so that we can function well uh, as a church, so that we can function well as a group, so that we can go on um, ministering and, and caring well for our city. But that, that's only going to if, happen if, if we're a healthy, uh, diverse group of people. And, and our culture today does not embrace diversity, despite all the talk of diversity. Uh, even the word diversity is used to separate people. The, the world we're living in is insane. I'm sure that's not news to anyone, right? This is, this is craziness. But, but go find your camp of people who think exactly like you do and go talk in that echo chamber until you're all riled up and hating everything. Uh, I, I once heard somebody say, uh, if you idolize, you, you end up demonizing, right? If you idolize your political party, you will demonize the other party. Right? If you idolize, if you think the most important thing of all is your gender, then you will demonize anyone who disagrees with your views on gender. Right? If you idolize adoption, you will begin to demonize anyone who chooses uh, natural childbirth. If you idolize homeschool, you begin to demonize anyone who chooses public school. If you uh, idolize foster care, you, be you begin to demonize uh, everyone else. If you idolize the this thing, 
uh, if you idolize anything, you will tend to demonize the opposite. And, and, and that causes separation, disunity, uh, and, and dishealth, unhealth uh, w- within the church. The, the thinking that if your thing is not my thing, then we can't be in community together is, is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It absolutely is. If your thing is not my thing, we should hang out more. That's what should happen, right? Because we're going to be built up together. When your thinking challenges my thinking, we should have more conversations because I'm going to get smarter, you're going to get smarter. I'm going to get more compassionate to other views, you're going to get more compassionate to other views. I shouldn't recoil from people who differ from me. I should embrace that. We should lean into that. That's healthy uh, within a church. So now let me, let me move on <clears throat> and, and, and briefly touch on the other side of this, which is, uh, which is on participation. So we've talked a lot about the unity of the church. Now let's talk about participation within the church. And, and I just have, have three quick things to say. Number one, Paul has no category here for the casual observer of, of Christianity. There, there's not a category for it. What, what brick is not participating in holding the structure up? I mean, maybe a decorative one out in the lawn or something? Like, I, I don't know what, like, his, his wording here, Paul just doesn't even have a frame of mind to think about somebody that would be a part of the church that's not participating. I, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or anything like that, but I do think that kind of the Western view, the American view of church, it, we, we have this idea that, that we, can be, we can be distant and, and we don't have to participate uh, and, and we're going to get everything that we need. Now, your salvation, let me be crystal clear, your salvation is 100% not dependent on your participation in church. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. That's not in here. That's not in the Bible. That's totally, that's something else, right? I'm not saying your salvation has anything to do with it. But I am saying that, well, let, let me point this out. Uh, within, the, uh, w- within this description here of the structure, uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you catch that? Like, no, you already read that. Okay. Uh, the structure is the dwelling place for the Lord. If you want to experience nearness with God, that is experienced as being a part of the structure. Paul is not talking here about the Spirit of God indwelling the bricks. He's talking about the Spirit of God coming in and dwelling the temple. To experience the nearness of God, to experience God's presence, we have to participate in the structure. We have to participate in in being a part of God's people, the body of whom Christ is the head. Now, can God... Uh, reveal himself to you and, and, and build your faith and grow your maturity in Christ apart from the church? Sure. Is that the design? No. No. You think about people who, who are in prison, Christians who get in prison in, in foreign nations, and, and they might have, you know, you hear these, these, these uh, stories that they have a scrap of a paper a scrap of a page of the Bible, and that's all they have. They memorize every word on that, that piece of a page of the Bible, and that's all they have, and they have no community with other Christians. Well, are they not going to experience the fullness of God? No, I don't think so. I think God's going to do some incredible things for that person as they cling to their faith in that situation, right? But that's not the, that's not the idea. We shouldn't all tear our Bibles up and take a piece of paper and say, this is the best possible way to study the Bible. 
like that's, that's a particular circumstance. But, you know, reading the whole of the Bible is, is a much better way to do it. And I think participating in the fullness of God's body, participating in, in the fullness of church is where we experience fullness in life. It's where we experience joy with one another. It's where we experience God's presence and blessing. And if we don't participate in, in God's now, I realize I'm preaching in the choir, like, quite literally, right? Because you're here and you're participating. You're, you're a part of this. But uh, I, 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 it has to be said, it's so critical that we participate in the structure, that we, that we engage with God's, uh, God's body, his church, because there's fullness of life in that. It's what God is calling us to. Uh, you know, we are, as a church, if, if one of us is not participating— Let's say I, I, I stop participating, uh, I, I stop engaging with the church in any way. Well, the, the church is missing something that I offer. What that is that I offer, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's something of value that I bring here, right? Uh, anyone could say, yeah, right, but okay, it's fine, it's fine. I'm not looking for any affirmation, it's fine. Uh, I bring something to the table, right? And if I'm not here, that something is missing, Okay. And also, if I'm not here, I'm missing something that I could be getting from you, right? Every single one of us brings something and takes something from the church. And fullness of life is experienced when we are participating and engaged in this thing because we get to give and get what God has designed for us to give and get within the body of Christ. I'll end with this story here. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to botch the story too, but... But he talks about C.S. Lewis uh, was a part of three best friends, right? Him and, and two other guys. I didn't catch their names. Uh, but, but they were all best friends, uh, co-best friends together. And, uh, and unfortunately, later in life, one of them passed away. And, and grief-stricken as both of uh, the, the other two friends were, C.S. Lewis thought, he, he wrote, I thought that, well, one positive outcome will be I will grow deeper in my relationship with the other friend. That uh, not having this other friend here, I will get a conversation not split three ways, but two ways, right? Time that would be split as we pair off and do different things together, activities that can be shared together. So uh, the, the only thing to console me in my grief of my friend who's now passed away is that I will grow deeper in my friendship with my other friend. What he found was the opposite was true. That when all three of them were together, this other, this other friend who had passed away, he brought out elements of each other's personality that C.S. Lewis could not bring out in his friend. That, that when they were in community together, there was a, a greater fullness that they got to experience in this relationship. And once his friend passed away, there actually was something missing. The relationship was less complete than when he was sharing his friend uh, with, with their other friend. And I think uh, participation in the church is similar. We don't even know how much we miss when we're not a part of this thing, when we're not participating and engaging, serving with one another and serving each other and caring for one another in that way. So that's just my challenge. I think it's Paul's challenge to participate, to be a part of the body, to be united to one another and actually celebrating the differences and the passions that we have. Those are God-given passions and the church is made healthier when we have a diversity of passions here. Let me pray. Father God, we love you so much, and, and we are so grateful for the way that you have, you have saved us, you have reconciled us to yourself, and then you call us to a ministry of reconciliation. 
God, I thank you that you don't just tell us to be reconciled to one another with all of our differences without first modeling what that reconciliation looks like. God, I thank you that, that you, have, uh, uh, you have sought us out, that you have crushed the wall of hostility that separates us and you, and, and you have embraced us as citizens of your kingdom, as members of your household, as pieces of the structure that you are building to dwell in. I pray that you would challenge us in ways that we have been not embracing unity, but where we have been uh, divided or divisive. God, would you convict us of that now? God, I pray that you would um, uh, place on our hearts uh, who, who it is that we need to seek out unity with within your church. God, put on our hearts uh, where it is that we should be participating in your church that, that maybe we have been holding a gift back from blessing those around us or, or holding back from receiving a gift that would be a blessing to us. God, I pray that we would all grow deeper in our knowledge and relationship of you and that as we do that, we would grow deeper in relationship with one another. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.